2 Corinthians chapter 8. We are continuing our series in 1 Thessalonians, and that will become clear to you as we kind of move forward here. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Christians say that Jesus Christ changes lives. We talk about transformation, and we actually see that, don't we? I mean, many of us are here, and we've experienced the grace of God. We we see how God has changed our understanding of the world and why we're here and what we're supposed to be about and where we're going. We see our convictions, beliefs, our attitudes, our values that are being shaped. We even see, because we're united with Christ, like our behavior, we start living differently. I mean, we've got a sense of peace. We're able to forgive people. Uh, we're moving forward in strength. Um, we can exercise self-control. We're actually seeing God shape how we parent, how we grandparent, how we see ourselves as a single. There is one critical area, however, that is frequently not discussed. And I would say oftentimes it's misunderstood. And it centers on this question. How does knowing the grace of God in Christ change how we handle our finances? It's really one of the most important questions you could ever ask. And now, have you ever just noticed in your reading of the Bible, like how much attention is given to like resources and stewardship and property and money and wealth? Did you know that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with that subject alone? That is actually twice as many verses in the Bible than there are about faith and prayer. Bill Leslie gives in a rather insightful set of questions. And he says the Bible really asks three main questions when it comes to money. One, how did you get it? Two, what are you doing with it? And the third, what is it doing to you? That third question, what is resources, money, wealth, doing to you. That really is where you find many of Jesus' most trenchant, penetrating parables as dealing with the subject of money. It's interesting, like Jesus gives 38 parables, 16 of them happen to deal with the subject of finances and stewardship. That's, if you look at the words of Jesus that we have recorded, that's one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels deals with this subject. So why did Jesus talk so much about money for this reason? How we handle money reveals what we believe in our heart. How we handle money really, it indicates and shows you what you really believe in your heart. You see, Christianity isn't like uh, just a certain set of doctrine that we're going to hold to or that we believe. It's far more than that. It's not just some sort of intellectual agreement. Christianity is a lifestyle that comes from being united with Christ by faith and following Jesus. It affects every aspect of your life. It affects how you go about your work, how you maintain relationships. It affects your parenting. It actually affects your finances, what you do with the money and the wealth that God has entrusted to you. Now, God gives finances through a variety of means. Oftentimes, it comes through work. You apply yourself. You use the gifts, the skills, the training, the education, and the opportunities that God gives you, and you apply yourself. But finances can also come from like an inheritance. Uh, it can come through investments. But God entrusts a degree and a measure of wealth to people. Some have a little, some have much. And they, God gives us resources, financial resources, for some very obvious reasons, like to provide for yourself, 
and to provide for your family, to actually pay your taxes, to um, provide perhaps for the needs of others. And one really important aspect of why God gives resources to his people is to actually further his work as we give as an act and expression of worship. The Bible presents really that he actually owns everything. And he is entrusting resources to believers, and really all people, but for believers, we actually see ourselves as a steward, or maybe a more modern word would be a manager. A manager doesn't really own the whatever he's managing. He's just managing the interests of the one who does. And that's really how the Bible presents resources and financial wealth to people. We're merely stewards. And he's very concerned that we make the most and the best uses of his resources to accomplish his purposes. Now, I was uh, reading about this uh, Paul Harvey radio commentator. Years ago, uh, he had this, uh, he records this instance of on Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving, that the uh, Butterball Turkey Company had set up a hotline, and there was a particular caller who uh, had a question about her turkey, and that's why they had the hotline, you know? So, like, what do you do with it and how to cook it? And this particular caller called and said, you know, listen, I, uh, I've got a turkey that's been at the bottom of my freezer for 23 years, and I want to know, is it safe to eat? I'm like, what? Are, you, are you sure? Tw- you mean 23 days? 23 weeks? No, 23 years. Is it safe to eat? Uh, well, like, well, the... They, re- they responded and said, well, um, I guess if the, the freezer has always maintained a temperature below zero degrees, I, I guess it, it would be safe to eat. It, it would have no flavor, and we advise you not to eat it. Well, the lady said, well, you know, that's what I thought. We will just give this turkey to the church. <laughs> Next, we just can't keep moving, right? What, what does giving to God really look like? Well, you don't have to guess. If you've got your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you have this stellar example and picture of what grace-motivated giving looks like. It starts in chapter 8. It goes all the way to about in chapter 9, verse 15. And it's focusing on a particular offering that was giving, being taken and is going to be given to the poor Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. And what he's doing is he's, he's focusing on churches in Macedonia, Berea, Philippi, and the church that we've been studying for the last few months, the church at Thessalonica. And he is helping them understand that if you want to know what grace-motivated giving looks like, this is it. So look at what he's going to be talking about here. Remember as we've been talking about the Thessalonians Remember, like, this is what church should look like. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus in a fallen world. Remember, the church at Thessalonica had become an example for the entire Roman Empire. Remember that? Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul wrote this, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You got a lot of problems, a lot of trials, tribulation, but you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he said in the next verse, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia is that area in Greece from Thessaly on south. The capital of Achaia, Corinth. 
the letter, Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, is written to the believers in Corinth. Now, in Macedonia, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, uh, they had become a Roman province for about 200 years. They had been ravaged by war for sometimes some rather extended wars that pretty much had left that area of the empire rather impoverished. And what he is doing is he is saying, you know, a church like at Thessalonica, they're an example of faith in Christ. You want to look like, see what growing in holiness and maturity looks like? They're it. There's something else you need to know. If you want to see what grace-motivated giving looks like, Paul says, I want you to learn from their example. You see, grace-motivated giving comes from Christ-centered living. Take a look at this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Paul's writing, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Paul is saying, hey, I want you to know what God is doing in their midst. This is a work of God. It's grace. It wasn't like, this is what they did. They're really noble people, and so they've done something rather noble. He's talking about, this is grace. It's unearned blessings that come from the relationship with Christ. And he's saying, you need to see what took place in their life. Their giving, the impetus was not fear. It wasn't some sort of bondage of guilt. It wasn't legalism. What moved them to give and the way that they gave was grace. And that's why he says you need to know about the grace of God, which is taking place in these churches. You see, God intends for his people to become conduits of grace. He gives and he wants it to flow out of our life. Grace, the grace of Christ in every aspect of our being. In fact, the more we do this and we see the grace of God just flowing through our life, including our finances... It shows that he's a gracious God and we can be entrusted with resources. We get it. He's Lord. We belong to him. Everything we have belongs to him. When you say, hey, I deserve this. You're looking at your money and your 401ks and your bank account and you're opening up your billfold. And you say, I deserve this. I worked hard. You know what? I believe you probably did work hard. But if you come with the attitude, I deserve this then you miss out on the experience of grace. Because in actuality, if you say, whoa, wow, God's entrusted this to me? What an enormous responsibility and what amazing love. That puts you in a position to be gracious. You see, when you experience grace, you learn to express grace and to live graciously and to extend it to others. And that's what had happened in the church at Thessalonica. So what are the characteristics of grace-motivated giving? What does it really look like? Well, we're just going to describe it. Let me just kind of read these verses, and then we're going to just talk about them. Look at verse 2. He says that in a greater ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So what does grace-motivated giving really look like? I'm going to just start listing the attributes that we find there in verse 2. First, it's unconditional. Did you see that? It's not based on good circumstances. What were their circumstances? Verse 2, they had a great ordeal of affliction, distress, hard circumstances, suffering. They had an abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Uh, the word in Greek 
speaks of like the most severe type of economic deprivation that actually caused someone to become a beggar. Okay, you have you have nothing left. You have no one, so you're forced to beg. That's the word here. Deep poverty. And you need to understand in the Roman Empire, a very, very small few had most of the money. Uh, you had like a 30% that had you know some resources. But 70% of the people in the Roman Empire had a survived at below or at a subsistence level, meaning hand to mouth. They basically had enough to feed themselves and their family, 70%. You find this when people are motivated by grace in their giving. You see this especially among people that are we would call poor. They don't have much. There is a heart to give. Uh, I've got a friend. His name is Bruce Alvord, and um, I was reading one of his letters this last night. He uh, talks about, in a, in a previous letter, that their church, he's a seminary professor in the Ukraine. Their church, which has really hardly any resources, they have decided to help support a missionary to a Muslim country in kind of like a forbidden part of the world. And, you know, they, I mean, they have no resources. They got all these people. They have a record number of pastors and people coming in for training, especially from the war zones in Ukraine. And they want to give. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from grace. You see, grace-motivated giving is unconditional. Notice something else in verse 2. They had the abundance of joy. It's joyful. There's a joy that arose. It's kind of like, remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he's going to say this in verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a, what, anybody know? Cheerful giver. There is a joy. It's not based on circumstances. It's joy. Notice something else in verse 2. It's generous. See this? They overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Okay? They were sincere and they were gracious, gracious and it just overflowed. Okay, so for all of you people that like equations or are math professors, people like math, try this equation on. Great affliction and deep Poverty plus grace equals this, abundant joy and abounding liberality. That equation doesn't make sense except for the factor of grace. Grace changes it all. Do you realize I've received this, I'm entrusted, and I'm moved? That's what's going on. You know, they may have not been rich, but you know what they were? They were rich in generosity. Let me give you another characteristic of grace-motivated giving. Look at verse 3. He says, For I testify that according to their ability, grace-motivated giving is proportionate. Okay? It actually sets no fixed amount or percentage, but God expects his people to give. And so he says, They gave according to their ability. Now, every believer is supposed to be financially involved in their local church. Now, Actually, the New Testament does not specify as to what degree. So you've probably heard of like a tithe, okay? And generally, when the subject of giving comes up, and oftentimes it doesn't, we try to avoid that. But when it does, we hear about, you should tithe. What does a tithe mean? 10%, right? But actually, the New Testament doesn't actually give a percentage. 10% of your income, giving unto the Lord, that, that is a great starting point. That's a great goal. 
But God doesn't actually set a percentage. He wants you to be motivated by grace. We perhaps could give much more when you consider our circumstances and what we have. God is interested, though, that we actually do give. He does not expect for us to give what we don't have, but he does expect for us to give proportionate to our ability. And that's part of grace-motivated giving. But it's not just proportionate to your ability. Notice this other factor, this other characteristic of grace-motivated giving. Verse 3, it is also sacrificial. They gave according to their ability, but look at verse 3, the rest of it, and beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord. They gave even more than what would be expected, especially with people in some pretty tough circumstances. And perhaps you, you see this. You seem to sympathize with ex- people that are going through experiences that maybe you have gone through. You've had an injury. You've gone through cancer. You've had heart issues. Guess what? You're pretty sympathetic with those people. You see that also with people that live what we would call poor. They have a heart for the poor. Years ago, I had the privilege of going to Russia, and I was teaching a two-week class on hermeneutics at Spaskia Blavetska Serikov, okay? Spask Bible Church. And I was there for two weeks. Uh, That's about as good as my Russian gets, by the way, okay? And uh, so I had these university translators, and I'm going to teach hermeneutics, the art and science of interpreting scripture. And so all the students in my class for two weeks, I would say, lived very poor. Uh, They generally wore the exact same clothes every single day. And what I did is at the beginning of each day, I would actually assigned and asked different students to give the devotional. We'd have morning time of prayer, worship, and they would give a devotional, and my translator would tell me what they're saying. Powerful. I mean, like, I'm like, I'm not teaching them anything. They are teaching me. I remember specifically this one woman, Nadia, and she is speaking, and She stands, she's got tears coming down her eyes, and she is talking about how her and her husband have so much desire to be able to give more to what God is doing, but they don't have anything more to give. And I'm sitting there going, I mean, I actually have a change of clothes for most of my days there on the trip. This particular couple invited me to their home, and I accepted. I actually went on my own without my translator, just with my Burlitz Traveler's Guide, you know? Okay, and I'm like, oh, I hope I make it back, but this will be interesting, right? And I go, and they have like the smallest of little homes that they're renting. And it was like a big honor. They were like treating like this is a huge deal. And I'm like, no, 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 really, this is no big deal. I'm no big deal. Just talk to my wife, you know, like, okay, they don't understand me. I'm sitting down. They, they want to give me chai, tea, uh, and then they explain that they, they actually don't have sugar. And I'm like, that's, that's not a problem, you know? I'll tell you, what, I'll never forget. You see this with grace-motivated giving. They're, they're sacrificial. And notice something else in verse 3. They, they gave of their own accord. Grace-motivated giving is willing, okay? They chose this course of action. You don't give out a compulsion, manipulation, intimidation, legalism. No, it's, it's free will. They gave of their own accord. They were self-motivated. They wanted to be engaged. And there's something else about grace-motivated giving that you need to see. And you might want to take a deep breath. Because verse 4 is going to challenge us to the core. Look at, it's also, grace-motivated giving is eager. Look at verse 4. They were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. I mean, can you imagine begging? We, we want you to take this. Like, I, you need to, no, no, we want you, we're urging. 
We want participation. We want fellowship. You see, they viewed their life as a ministry, and giving was a big part of that. They wanted the privilege of being a part of it. And you see, that's what happens when grace motivates a heart. You don't have to be well off. You just have to be willing. And that's what grace does. And there's something else you need to see in verse 4. They were purposeful. They wanted to support the saints. You see that in verse 4? They, they wanted to meet the needs of others. They wanted to give to the glory of God that God would accomplish his work through his people. They were just like, well, we'll just got to throw some money at something. We just hope it ends up and it works out and it'll be helpful. No, highly intentional, engaging their brain and their mind. This wasn't just some sort of spontaneous quick decision. Hey, I got a spare change in my pocket today. I'll throw it in the basket. No, this was intentional. This was purposeful. You see, a good steward is really a grace-motivated manager of financial resources that God has entrusted to them. And what grace does, man, grace is powerful. These blessings that come from the riches of relationship with Christ. It frees us from being stingy and, and so selfish. In fact, what grace does is it, it frees us from ourselves. And we truly become conduits of grace. So well, those are the characteristics. Like, where does this come from? I mean, like, isn't that the million-dollar question? How in the world could you end up like this? Well, you don't have to guess. Verse 5. I got it marked. I got it underlined. This is such a key verse. The source of grace-motivated giving. What is the root of it? Look at verse 5. And this. Not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. First refers not to time, but priority. This is the will of God, and they are the center of it. They first gave themselves up. You see, generous giving follows personal dedication. You give yourself to the Lord, and then you are free to give your resources. That's how it works. This is the key. Verse 5 is the key to all Christian living and all Christian giving. See, if you uh, give your money without really giving yourself to God, that is actually a dangerous position to be. Because you get, you start developing a mindset, well, I give to God, I'm kind of like got this contract going with him. I'm giving, he better be happy with me because I'm giving to his work, whatever that might be. No. If uh, we give ourselves to God, we're going to have little problem of giving the substance that God has entrusted to us, to him. If you want a picture of this, what does it look like to give yourself first to the Lord? Uh, in John 12, uh, right before Jesus, in fact, it's six days before the Passover, right before where Jesus is going to actually bear our sins in his body on the cross, he's at the home of Mary, Martha, and the resurrected Lazarus, okay? How's that? Can you imagine? He's at their home, and and remember Mary? She has she comes and she has this vial of perfume. We know it's twelve ounces. It, this this would be extremely valuable. It may actually be her entire retirement, all that she would plan to live on when she could no longer earn a living. And you remember what she does? She comes, she bows down at the feet of Jesus. She opens it up. And she starts pouring that perfume on his feet and, and takes her hair and starts wiping the feet of Jesus. Remember Jesus receiving this act of worship? Friends, that's what grace-motivated giving looks like. It is sourced in you just giving yourself fully 
to him. It's a stunning picture of what worship and grace-motivated giving really looks like. So why is this so important? Why is it important to be a people that experience and express grace-motivated giving? Well, let me show you some reasons. Look at verse 6. First of all, it fulfills one's commitment. So he says, So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. We find from verse 10 that about a year ago, uh, when this offering was going to be taken, uh, that apparently the Corinthians had stepped up. Count us in. I mean, they're doing far better than the Macedonian folks that have been all tore up by war, right? We're, we're going to step forward in a major way. But something happened. I mean, they had, they had like given up. I mean, they hadn't got, they'd gone from drive to neutral. Maybe they were even in reverse. And so Paul says, you know what? I'm going to send Titus. He's a key guy, and he's going to help you fulfill your commitment. You see, when we are experienced grace-motivated giving, we fulfill the commitments that we have felt moved by God to make. There's something else, though, that's so critically important that you understand why grace-motivated giving is so important. It furthers one's maturity. Don't miss this. Look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, okay, get it? You got everything. You're abounding in everything. You got it good. Almost as good as those folks in Waco, Texas. You got it good. You abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you. See that you abound in this gracious work also. I mean, he's saying, hey, listen, you got a real enthusiasm for spiritual gifts. In fact, you remember that they had actually kind of twisted and manipulated and were using spiritual gifts in a way that was absolutely unbiblical. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 addresses this kind of what we could call charismatic chaos that was going on. Hey, you need to use the gifts, and they need to be the gifts from God used in the way he intended. What you got going on in your church, that is far cry from what God intended. So he addressed those issues. You, you are bounding. I mean, you've got, you've got faith. You're trusting in the Lord. You've got utterance, speech. You've got knowledge, applying biblical doctrine. You've got earnestness. There's diligence. There is a love, a love of choice. We see that. But you know what? He's saying, verse 7, there is one major thing missing in your development. And what is that? that you need to learn how to use the finances God's entrusted to you for his glory. You see, one major aspect of maturity is learning how to use the finances God has given you for the purposes that he's intended. Kent Hughes said this, Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. It's like Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well, right? That's how it works. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. Don't you see that? You, you give to the church. You give to a missionary. You give to a particular cause that's forwarding the kingdom of God. And what happens, man? You are totally concerned. What's going on? What's happening? Is the gospel being advanced? Are people coming to know Jesus? Are disciples being made? Is maturity taking place? You want to know. What? Why? Because your heart is in it. And that's how it works. In fact, there is great treasure in the kingdom of heaven for even your earthly investment. But I'd go so far as to say, you actually start experiencing that now. It is a joy to be a part of it. 
this is where true discipleship needs to make sure we address. You know, when we talk about discipling people and seeing people come to maturity, oftentimes we think like, well, they can share their faith and they're taking steps forward. They're going to have a quiet time. They can read the Bible. They can pray. Um, they're growing in this area in faith. They're learning how to serve. But we always just hardly ever get around to one of the most important subjects, what they do with their finances. You know, if you uh, don't address the issue of giving, giving as an act of worship, grace-motivated giving, it's like a sinkhole in your life. And it, it can just kind of like stagnate your development. It's like something that is critically important to the Lord and you're ignoring or holding out on. We're not going to grow. And don't kid yourself. And, you know, we have all sorts of reasons why we can't do this, right? Well, you know what? I'm going to start giving when I pay off the car. I get a full-time job or the children are done with school. Then I'm going to step up and I'm going to step in a big way. No, just be faithful with the little you've got and let's see what God's going to do. Grace-motivated giving. It furthers your maturity, just like what he's addressing in verse 7. Let me tell you something else. It also furnishes proof of your love. Look at verse 8. He says, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. What he's saying is biblical giving is never divorced from Christian virtues. You give because it's an expression of love. And you can give without loving. You know that? You can do that. You can be legalistic. You're just like, oh, I just got to give. <laughs> But you cannot love without giving. That's true of all of your relationships. That's true in the matter of your finances. You see, how we handle material wealth is really a barometer of our spiritual health. And it furnishes proof of his love. He says, this isn't a command. I'm not commanding you to do this. This is free will. In essence, this is what he's saying. All he's doing is saying, hey, Corinthians... I want you to see the grace of God and how he's moving in the churches of Macedonia, like Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. I want you to understand the poverty in which they live and the spirit in which they give. And you just prayerfully go before the Lord and ask him, what shall I do? That's all God is doing in this passage. What is it that you're to do? There's just one other most significant uh, reason why grace-motivated giving is so important. It is how we follow our Savior. One of the most powerful verses in the Bible, this great verse in this grand letter, is verse 9. Look at this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, the most generous person ever is Jesus. Look what this text says. Though he was rich, I mean, this is speaking of the eternality and the preexistence of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He was rich, like he had all things. He owns everything. He possesses all power, authority, sovereignty, glory, honor, majesty. He is it. He's preeminent. He is rich, but what did he do? He entered into humanity. It's the incarnation. It's what we celebrate this Christmas season. He comes in, he enters into humanity, he became poor. Not so much like, oh, Jesus came and he lived in a humble family and they didn't have much money. That actually may not be true. It has really very little to do with the physical, financial resources when it talks about he became poor. We're talking about the preeminent, preexistent 
eternal God enters into humanity, he becomes poor. He enters into the work of redemption, and that means he's going to be rejected, ridiculed, he's going to be persecuted, betrayed, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. He becomes poor. Why? Why did he do this? So that you, what does the text say? So that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. Just like Jesus intentionally set aside the divine exercise of his uh, his attributes, and it was his prerogative to do so, he temporarily set them aside to enter into humanity, becomes poor. He does so that you and I will experience wealth, not necessarily physical wealth, but the riches of salvation. The health and wealth people, man, they get it all wrong. Jesus just wants you rich, right? Okay, you can pack a lot of people in your place by telling them that because I really want to hear that. But that's not what this text is saying. He makes you rich in salvation. You receive forgiveness and joy and peace and glory and honor and majesty and grace. Do you know that you're a joint heir with Christ? We don't even know what that means. And yet it's true of us. We experience justification, sanctification. We got a future glorification awaiting us all because we're united with Christ. He became poor so that we would become rich in our relationship with him. And friends, this is the gospel. This is what changes everything. This is why Jesus has come. When we consider, well, what should I give? All we really need to do is consider Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate picture and pattern of grace-motivated giving. It's like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he... Anybody know that one? Might want to work on that. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. That's grace-motivated giving. You see, when we experience grace-motivated giving... God is worshipped, the witness of God goes forth, and the work of God is financed, just as he intended. You see, grace-motivated giving comes from Christ-centered living. And that's what God intends. So, giving is a key part of Christ-centered living. It's true of you. It's true of me. When we train our children, we want to start at a very early age. You model it. But you show them this is one of the ways that we worship our awesome God. And we do so with joy. It is grace motivated. Uh, for me, I think many of you know my story. I, I became a Christian when I was at college. Um, several years hearing the gospel and researching. Uh, after I became a Christian, um, I saw that this was important. The church I was going to, uh, you'd see people like giving. And you know, I kind of like wanted to know more about like why and what's going on. Um, I was like one of those super broke college students just trying to put themselves through school. Did not have hardly anything. But in talking and learning, I realized this is important. And so I, I really thank God. It was a work of God's grace in my life that I actually learned how to start giving to both my church and to some missionaries, which were fellow college students going on short-term missions. Because this is how you grow. And friends, There was a lot of growth needed in my life, just as there is today. And this was explained, and by the grace of God, I was able to put it into practice. You know, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like learning how to play the piano. You know how you do that? You you start off, you got middle C, right? And you start there, and you learn how to play like these masterpieces of four-note songs, right? And, you know, and and you learn how to do that. But as you practice, why, you can get really good. 
And I've been going to my kids' piano recitals for the last, like, 15 years, and I've been involved in a lot of them when I was a kid. And I, uh, I, it's cool to watch these kids, but one of the things I've noticed is that there's an increasing number of adults that are actually starting to take piano lessons. I mean, these are, like, you know, fully grown adults. they got, like, real jobs, and they're taking piano lessons. And, you know, and, they, and they're a part of these recitals, and they play their, like, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and, and we're just all clapping. This is awesome, you know. You're 45, and you got it. Finally, you know, we're really happy for you. You know, they're just getting started. But you know what? I, I remember uh, a couple months ago we were at the nursing home playing, and I'm like, man, some of the, they're getting, like, really good. I mean, they can play beautiful music. I tell you what, I love that grace-motivated, growth mindset, continuous development. I want to do this. I don't care what you think about me. I want to grow. I want to learn how to do this. Friends, I tell you this, because like playing the piano, giving is a skill that needs to be developed. It's got to start somewhere with a middle C. Ding, one dollar. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be stable financially. I can do But friends, you can learn to play masterpieces. And I'll tell you what. That's one of the great joys of being a church-like fellowship. we got so many people that are grace-motivated in their giving. It's taking place. I mean, we're able to invest in children, and we're able to invest in all these small groups and, and all these people of every age. The gospel's going forth. we got a, we got an addition taking place just to, so we can continue to meet the ministry needs in our church. We've got missionaries that are going out and get ready. Who knows what God might just be doing? But it's happening. That's how the ministry goes forth. And it's really our vision. It's simple and it's profound. It's like, remember, you become a Christian. You trust in Christ. It's like you're a little sapling. And you start sinking deep roots and knowing God and his word. And it starts manifesting in every aspect of your life, in your relationships, how you go about your work. You see your work as worship. You get a ministry. Do you know what else you show up, shows up? It shows up in your giving. How can it not? And my friends, I tell you, grace-motivated giving comes from Christ-centered living. And this story of transformation, it continues to this very day. 